I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome one of the most famous pastry chefs in America, Zach Young, to our podcast today. He is the creator behind the Pie Cake and Bake Shop based in New York City. Welcome, Zach. Thank you for having me, Alexander. Uh, Zach, let me ask you about the inspiration for your business. We've been doing interviews with a number of small business owners, culinary creators, uh, wanting to hear their insight into the origin of their story, how they came to be, and what it's been like living through and doing business during this pandemic, and their recommendations for the new administration, um, both here in New York, the state, and also the federal government as the administration changes. But can you just tell our listeners um, about the inception of your business and, and how it's changed over this past year? Yeah, I mean, pie cake and the uh, the all-in-one Thanksgiving dessert <laughs> started uh, as a joke. Uh, you know, I was working, I was a partner in a restaurant group, and uh, one Thanksgiving, we decided to do it as a special in one of our restaurants. Uh, and I mainly did it because the executive chef there uh, was a bit of a man-child and was very excited about his turducken special. And to kind of one-up him, I said, I'll make the turducken of dessert. And it was just supposed to be a slice for a special on Thanksgiving one day. And through, uh, through Instagram, my friends started asking if they could buy a cake. And I said, well, we don't, we don't sell cake. You know, we're a restaurant. <laughs> we don't sell whole cakes. But enough people asked, uh, enough people asked that I, I said, let's figure out how to sell cakes. So we started that Thanksgiving and it exploded based off of a single e-blast that we sent out. Next thing I know, Kelly Ripa's talking about it. And then every, you know, New York Times is calling and, and uh, all of a sudden we were selling cake. Um, so we rode that wave and uh, kind of started it as a, as a side piece off of the restaurant group, making it in our various restaurant kitchens uh, and then selling it through the, through the restaurants. Um, and then we decided to kind of grow it into a more full-scale bakery concept. Um, we did a year-long residency out in Minneapolis to kind of refine the whole product line. Um, and about four years ago, we also started shipping. We started uh, direct-to-consumer for the holidays um, with a company called Foodie Direct, which has now been acquired by Goldbelly. Um, and that was four years ago, this kind of direct-to-consumer model mixed with the uh, in-store in our restaurants. Um, the inception, <laughs> it was a joke. It was never supposed to be. Well, it, it was a joke, but it was a successful and, and fruitful outcome. Um, you have had the experience over these past several years in adapting prior to the pandemic in making your desserts available to the entire country, if not the world. Um, so you probably had some amount of infrastructure that peers in the pastry world, but also the broader culinary industry did not have. Did, would you say that's accurate that you had some, some amount of infrastructure that you could build on when the pandemic hit? Absolutely. 
Um, you know, it was a four year learning curve of how to produce food and produce food and ship food, um, how to sell it online. Um, you know, it, it was a real learning curve that we went through. And um, this year we were never prepared. <laughs> we never really know what to expect, uh, but we, we certainly had more relationships and more connections going into the pandemic. But to be honest, I wasn't sure how that would play out. Um, I wasn't sure if people would be ordering food you know, shipping food. I wasn't sure if, you know, the delivery services would actually be delivering them because there was a need for everything else to be shipped. Um, but this year has just exploded. Um, and it it almost feels unfair to talk about the, the success that we've had this year um, while the rest of the industry has been completely decimated. Um, I think the one thing I'll say about, you know, restaurant restaurant people is that we're scrappy um, and we're adaptable. Um, and, you know, we're, it's always a let's put on a show. Um, so you're seeing a lot of, a lot of people pivot and which is what you have to do. Um, is pivoting going to be enough when you say the industry has been decimated? Um, you were able to adapt and and are able to thrive in this environment. What do you, what percent of folks do you think have been able to make some adaptation? I mean, I think, I think a hundred percent of the people who are still open had to adapt. Um, but it'll never make up for the industry as we know it, you know, shipping, shipping food is one thing, but that, that won't make up for, a steakhouse, you know, that won't make up for a neighborhood restaurant or a bar. Um, it's a very small piece of the industry and, and kind of a limited line of products that you, you could ship anyway. And people are figuring that out. You know, you're seeing a lot more dry aged steak shipping or meal kits shipping, chef driven meal kits shipping, right? But that doesn't make up for doing 300 covers in a night. You also are someone who has interacted with the culinary world on television in uh, various competitions in which there is close proximity to another human being. And just as the pandemic struck, um, there was a new season of Top Chef debuting and, and airing. And th there was an opportunity to recognize the scale of devastation that was forthcoming. And of course, there was no legislation on a statewide basis or nationally proportionate to the decimation that you described. Um, you know, the, the, there, there has been a lacking cognizance since then, but has it improved? The situation or in terms of- I would of say the, the public's awareness of the, of the danger of the industry and, and the, the lack of awareness of the problem. Yeah. I, I, no, I think there still needs to be much more awareness. Again, I think it goes back to the scrappy nature of us. Um, I think a lot of uh, restaurateurs don't publicize just how dire it is uh, because they need to appear strong. They want to appear strong. Um, you know, they built their empire single-handedly and, um, 
you know, no one likes to to see a wounded deer or, you know, the, the wounded animals in the wild get eaten, you know? Um, and I think people don't realize the, the, the reach of the industry because it's not just the chef that's hurting or the hostess that's hurting. It's the entire supply chain. You know, you look at everything from farmers to dairy to the distributors, you know, the, the trickle down from the industry is massive. And that's something that people, some people are only now realizing just, just how much the industry consumes of, of product that's made. Um, when you see warehouses of onions that will never be sold, right? Um, because people shopping at grocery stores won't make up for the institutional use. In your own experience, what was the most challenging in securing your menu list uh, of ingredients? Um, did, was, had there been any breakdowns in the supply chain to make the delicious and, and extraordinary <laughs> creations you devise? I'll, I'll tell you most, most recently um, was dry ice, which you don't really think about when you think of food, but when we're shipping, everything ships frozen and on dry ice and dry ice is perishable. It's a manufactured product. Um, not only is the use of it uh, in the food industry up, but the pharmaceutical industry has a massive hold on dry ice, uh, specifically for the vaccine as it's being shipped. Um, so something you don't think about, dry ice. Um, incredibly hard to source <laughs> and perishable. Luckily we were able to secure enough, but you know, you're, you're competing for resources. You know, it's not just, it's not just toilet paper, yeah. or paper towels, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and uh, besides dry ice, do you, have you found most of the ingredients have been in relatively um, consistent supply? Yeah. Mo most ingredient ingredients have been, been stocked. I think the, the real problem was getting the distributors back up and running. Uh, the ingredients were there, but maybe not being able to be moved through or, you know, moved from one part of the country to another distribution center to then come to us. Um, when the machine started up again, back up again, and people started purchasing in larger amounts again, the supply chain had to react. Um, and I think that was kind of across the, the board. I mean, we found it with our labor too, the people who are, who are making, the, uh, making the cakes um, easing back into a normal workload going from, from zero to 60 was very hard. And it was also hard in the supply chain too. We were like, oh yes, I do need those two tons of flowers, flour next week when no one had been ordering. They're like, well, we have it. We just need to get it from Oregon. So you probably were quite aware of the extent to which Americans were baking, um, regular Americans, who might not have been schooled as you were <laughs> and th that uh, there was a run on all those essentials for baking bread, pies, cakes, uh, do you, from your experience. Flour. Yeah. <laughs> um, from, from your experience interacting 
with folks outside of the restaurant and culinary world. Do you think that that was a fad that has been exhausted? And again, there's a recognition of the necessity of a professional class of experts like yourself. Sure. I mean, I, I loved that people were getting more interested in, in baking specifically. I think, you know, the more people are educated, the more they appreciate what they're getting, if they're, whether they're buying it or whether they're making it. Um, there was a moment when I was like, all right, you guys need to calm down with the sourdough because I'm going to be out of a job soon. Um, but I, I think much like online shopping habits or, or any habits, the, the, the pendulum will not 100% swing back uh, to the same place it had been. So it'll be interesting to see now that people are cooking at home more, baking at home more, uh, working from home, um, what happens when things start to reopen, you know, and are people going to be dining out less because they're used to cooking and they know they can cook and they're not driving home from work to, to stop on their way home and pick something up. Um, and I think what we know from, from retail habits are that people don't a hundred percent go back. Not that they're really 100% the same, you know, people cooking versus people buying stuff online. But, you know, I think people are creatures of habit. So it'll be interesting to see what people choose to do when restaurants specifically reopen. As we anticipate a new administration taking power, what would be your hope um, for the kind of grants, loans, programs that would be available to yourself and your colleagues in the profession or any suggestions of actions that have not been taken that you would recommend? I mean, I, I think specifically it actually goes down to a local level um, in New York City. You know, we see the commercial real estate, the rent, as just being this massive fixed cost and untenable, you know, no one, no one can pay it. Retailers, restaurateurs, um, it's out of control. And the, the landlords are almost incentivized not to fill vacant spaces. Um, and that's the, the number one issue that I see is the fixed cost of rent and the the city and state not intervening um something like a vacancy tax you know you you see these storefronts in new york city like ninth avenue and hell's kitchen that are just they've been empty for years now because everyone's holding out for the next highest rent and the people who can afford the rent are or pretend to afford the rent are you know the banks the drugstore, uh, this generic, uh, the neighborhoods are completely losing any identity. Um, and it, it, it helps no one. I mean, it, it sounds horrible, but, you know, it's kind of like a scorched earth situation right now. You know, so many businesses, not just food businesses, but small businesses uh, are out of business and will be shutting their storefronts and there's going to be massive vacancy 
So my the only silver lining here is that hopefully it's a reset um, for rent rates and legislation uh, kind of regulating vacancy. That sounds very doable. And at the same time, there are those entrenched interests at the state and local level that have prevented any legislation from happening when it comes to real estate reform. Um, do you have particular hope um, or would you suggest a specific strategy on the municipal level to try to petition the mayor, the council, or the state? Because often when it comes to these systemic issues, it's something that this mayor has punted on and the governor is not interested in the kind of holistic solutions that are necessary, whether it is commercial or residential real estate and the problems that you identify. But if you were to direct any of our listeners to specifically strategize on that question of the most effective way to achieve the important legislation or reforms that you're describing, where might they start? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't... (laughs) I just make the donuts, <laughs> um, but you know, I, I think that the first of all, de-incentivizing <laughs> seems to be the the easiest uh, solution here, the, the fastest solution here. Um, but I do think that that a, a vacancy tax or penalty is in order as well. A vacancy tax that I think, again, both when it comes to commercial and residential real estate, that question of vacancy and the hoarding of income and wealth through those vacancies, um, it has been a decades long problem in New York City. And I would imagine, Zach, it's not just New York. It's I mean, it's every major market, you know, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, it it is, it's across the country. And even the, you know, the, the smaller cities across the country, it's, it's not just New York. I think New York, there's just more people and we're more vocal. And when you look down ninth Avenue and you see block after block closed, it's a powerful image. Whereas in a more spread out city, you don't realize that there's a vacant spot on every corner. Zach Young of Pycaken, thank you so much for your insight, uh, for your culinary creations, <laughs> and for sharing some perspective on what could alleviate the challenge and the harm right now in this community. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.